This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Please join me in a reading of the today's scripture lesson taken from the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Jesus Christ was a man who traveled the land, hardworking man and brave. He said to the rich, give your goods to the poor. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. He went to the sick, he went to the poor, he went to the hungry and the lame, said that the poor would one day win this world. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff, told them all the same, sell all of your jewelry and give it to the poor. But they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. When Jesus came to town, the folks, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him to the cross and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Poor working people, they followed him around, sung and shouted gay. Cops and soldiers, they nailed him in the air, and they nailed Jesus Christ in his grave. When the love of the poor shall one day turn to hate, when the patience of the workers gives way, would it be better for you rich if you'd never been born? So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. This song was written in New York City of rich men, preachers, and slaves. Yes, if Jesus, yet if Jesus Christ was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave. Written in 1940, Woody Guthrie wrote the song Jesus Christ, which I just read rather than sang. And it tells in eight verses what Jesus preached in his time, especially about the rich and the poor and that he was killed by different powerful groups who rejected his preaching and laid Jesus Christ in his grave. The ninth verse, though, says that Jesus, just as Jesus was killed in his time, so too would he be killed by our own modern society if he preached now what he preached then. Often to our detriment, we tend to downplay the words of Christ in an effort to make his words more palatable and more easily accepted. But in doing so, we miss out on who Jesus was and why it was that he was killed. 
last week in Sunday school, we were talking about Jesus being labeled a criminal in the different Gospels and what that means. And I think, I think there's something to be said about that. Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, in his day a criminal. He went around preaching this radical message of love, but so too was this message tinged with responsibility, particularly with the responsibility that those with have towards those without. The rich, the powerful, the happy, the satisfied are all at great risk of condemnation, Jesus said. The message that Jesus was preaching was was a direct threat not only to the Roman occupying forces that held Israel under the peace of Rome, so too was it a, so too was it a threat to the rich who ruled over the poor, a threat to the religious elite who held the access to God in the narrow confines of the of the temple. So too was it a threat to every establishment and institution that existed. When the Pharisees warned Jesus in this passage that Herod wanted to kill him, it wasn't because Jesus was too nice. It wasn't because Jesus was too loving. It was because the message that Jesus was preaching was one that undermined not only King Herod's authority, but so too did it undermine the authority of the Romans and the leaders of the faith, the leaders of the country, the leaders of the society. Simply put, if Jesus' message took hold, it risked not only upsetting everything and everyone, it very much risked Israel remaining in good standing with the peace of Rome. At this time in history, Israel was on shaky ground within the Roman Empire. They had already gone through one attempted rebellion, the Maccabean Revolt of the 2nd century BC, which was violently and forcefully put down. But in the time since, the time that Jesus was living in, there was a sort of messianic fervor going on. This expectation that the Messiah would soon arrive and drive Rome from Israel's border and restore restore the nation of Israel into one unified kingdom. At this time, there were assassinations of religious and governmental leaders alike and there, would always, there were always whispers of these revolts out in the countryside. And so if Jesus were to create too much of a stir, if he were to bring about or bring too much attention to himself, it was very likely that Rome would not only come down on Jesus, but Rome would come down on all of Israel and especially Jerusalem itself. Ultimately, about 40 years later, this is exactly what happened when... After another attempted rebellion and revolt, Rome burned Jerusalem to the ground and drove all the people into the diaspora or the scattering. This was a common tactic of the Roman Empire to break up people groups so that their identity could be more easily eroded and they would become a part of Rome instead of whatever group they were a part of. The Jewish people, though, perhaps better than any other culture in history, was better at resisting this as they had made such oppression a part of their religious identity, if not a part of who they were. 
And so driving them into diaspora, driving them into this scattering out across the Roman Empire only served to make them more devout and in turn more easily ostracized by the cultures they lived among because unlike the other cultures, they didn't assimilate quite as easily. And of course, this didn't help them over the centuries as anti-Semitism continued to rise as the years went on. Now, turning back to the text, it's worth noting that the number of times that Jesus visits Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke is once. In the other Gospels, Mark, Matthew, John, Jesus kind of pops in and out of Jerusalem at will. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus goes to Jerusalem exactly one time. Everything that Jesus does is leading him towards Jerusalem. Everything Jesus says and does builds on everything else that happens in the book of Luke. And so when we read one part of Luke, we should always keep in mind everything that happened before that came about in Luke. So when we read a text like this, we tend to get confused about the role of a prophet. Modern media and nearly 2,000 years of certain narratives of history and tradition have given us this view of prophets that would see them more as soothsayers or fortune tellers, a people purely relegated to the role of fortune teller. This wasn't the case, though. In reality, this wasn't a widely accepted belief until after the Gospels were written and the rest of the New Testament was put together. A prophet in the Jewish faith was a person who spoke truth, or more specifically, a person who spoke truth to power. Kings and rulers of the ancient world had prophets on staff, not to tell the future necessarily, but rather to speak the truth of what their actions would do. If they, if they predicted the future, it was in the sense that they could see the direction the wind was blowing and therefore determine what the likely outcome would be. A prophet, in so many ways, was an advisor. Now, of course, this meant that there would be different types of prophets in, in operation at any time. There would be the prophets who were the agents of power, the prophets who would operate as propagandists, who would produce predictions and words of God, so to speak, that never cast the kingdom, let alone the ruler, in a bad light. These were the prophets who would have been in the employ of Herod or other kings, prophets who told the king or ruler exactly what they wanted to hear and nothing else. Then there were the prophets who acted as a sort of stitch in the side of power, prophets who would reveal that the emperor wasn't wearing any clothes. Prophets who, by and large, were not popular among the powerful, but who were often popular among the poor and the oppressed. In some ways, these were the Woody Guthrie's of the world. These were the Martin Luther King Jr.'s. These were the ones who offered a message of something better, but something that required change on everyone's part. These were predominantly men who spoke in such a way that not only the common person could understand, but also in a way that gave hope to the common people. 
These were the ones living out the role of the prophet as outlined in Isaiah 61 and repeated in Luke 4, the role of preaching good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, liberation of the oppressed, proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. To be a prophet in so many ways is to proclaim jubilee. Now, as I said, everything in Luke builds upon everything that came before it. And so in so many ways, the most. In so many ways, the gospel of Luke is the most thematically coherent of the gospels, meaning that everything, everything that happens has a purpose for what comes next. It's telling a story, so to speak. When Jesus reads from the scroll, of, the scroll of Isaiah in Luke 4, it's meant to directly relate to Jesus saying that a prophet cannot be killed outside of Jerusalem in the, in the verse that we read today. Likewise, Jesus saying that a prophet can't be killed outside of Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of what will happen 10 chapters later. And so all of this pulls us back to this concept of jubilee. As Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah back in Luke 4, which is his first public act in ministry, it's meant to inform us of who this Jesus guy is and what this Jesus guy is doing and who he is for and who he sides with. Jesus is on the side of the poor. Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. Jesus is on the side of the downtrodden and the outcast. In the Jewish calendar, Jubilee is a celebration. It's a year or it's a celebration that occurs every that would occur at least as it was supposed to every 7 years. And it would be a restructuring of society in a way that benefits everyone, especially the poor. Jubilee signals a year of rest for the fields. It signals debt forgiveness. It signals the release of those held in bondage, slaves and prisoners alike. It is the, it is the release of private property back into the hands of the people rather than the hands of the very few. Jubilee is meant to maintain equity it's meant to retain or maintain justice it's meant to implement shalom the wholeness that god intended for the world we live in with this in mind we can better understand why jesus was killed why jesus was hated by the powerful why jesus was nailed to a cross and laid in his grave because to the powerful and the mighty, jubilee is threatening. It's threatening to those who hold the chips, debts forgiven, slaves released, fields allowed to rest. I don't know, maybe Woody Guthrie was Woody Guthrie. Guthrie. Maybe Woody Guthrie was onto something when he said that the powerful today would you, would be just as keen on killing him as they were in his day. Now I know by no means that we do we live in a theocracy, meaning a nation that places God as the king of the nation and emphasizes religious laws above everything else, but maybe the concept of jubilee is something that we need in our time. 
With the moment that we are in now with high prices on everything and the communal suffering of everyone caused by that, maybe we need a breakdown of the current structuring of society and a return to something more just, something more life-giving, something that benefits the many and not just the few. Now, practically, I don't, get, I don't know how to get from point A to point B. I can say this is a good idea. We can all say that this is a good idea, but unless someone in power listens, unless someone speaks truth to power in a way that's listened to, I'm not sure anything will change. But we can still do something. What can be done is something that we can do right here in our own community, right here in Bangor, Michigan, right here in Simpson United Methodist Church. We can live as though Jubilee is in full swing. We can practice living in ways that are more equitable, that are more loving to our neighbors. We can practice mutual aid, the idea of sharing our resources and building one another up in love. We can imagine a community where no one goes hungry because everyone in the community looks out for everyone else. We can imagine a community where kids are cared for not only by their parents, but by people who genuinely care and support them. A community where love is the ethic and where the people living together are moving towards something better. Something more just, something more equitable, something more whole, something more like the kingdom of God. We can't expect the world to enter a year of jubilee. We can't expect the nation or the state to. We can't expect a lot of that on a large scale, but we can practice that right now. We can practice it right here in this church, and that's something that I believe we've already been doing here at Simpson United Methodist Church. I've said it before, and I'll say it again that when I got here, the thing that excited me most was the feeling of hope that I felt among the congregation, and I still feel that. The feeling that our best is yet to come, the feeling that we aren't just stuck looking back at the past at some great temple that we built on the mountainside, but rather looking ahead to something better. So at the Parsonage, Ellen and I are making plans as we stare out at that big piece of property in the back for creating a gardening space, creating some sort of farm situation. It's something that we hope will be like a community garden or a community farm, something where something like a space where we can share with one another in growth and the cultivation of the land. As Larry has pointed out, that's two weeks in a row I've, <laughs> I've named you. <laughs> As Larry has pointed out, the land up there is full is sandy, and it's not really all that good, but something can come of that. God brings life to barren places. So it's my belief that we can restore that land into something good and something useful and something that can cultivate life might not be this year, it might not be next year, but if we work on it, something can come. 
So what we are working towards is something where we can begin to move to move towards something that looks like this idea of jubilee. And the thing that gives me the most hope for this is that it isn't just Ellen and I talking about this. I can see a few people right here in this congregation who have said similar things to me, who have come up to me without me saying this idea to them and have told me almost the exact same thing. This idea of community garden, this idea of community space, this idea of sharing what we have with one another. We're sharing similar dreams, it seems. And I really think that when a lot of people are sharing similar dreams and when they're not necessarily getting those dreams from one another but seem to be all sharing those at the same time, it maybe means God is moving there. And so what I believe is that we can begin to live out this idea of kingdom living right here. Right here at the Simpson United Methodist Church, right here in Bangor, Michigan, we can begin to live towards the kingdom that Jesus had in mind. In this passage, Jesus says that he longs to gather his people like a mothering hen gathers her children under wing. In the backyard of the parsonage, we have a small collection of chickens that seems to continue to grow. And I know that when chickens are gathered together, they're better off. They huddle together for protection and strength, and a flock of chickens is better than one chicken alone. We've occasionally let the chickens roam about the backyard without being contained in the fence, and what's occasionally happened is a hawk has once or twice decided to feast on one of the lonely chickens. But since we've gotten a rooster, since the chickens have learned that maybe we should stick together instead of wander apart, that hasn't happened. In the same way, we are better together than we would be alone. And so looking ahead, I'm looking forward, this is looking far ahead, but I'm looking forward to the, ser to the series that I'm planning to put together after Easter because I'm planning a series on what this can look like, this sense of living together and sharing together and being together. And I'm doing it with the idea of gardening in mind, the idea of farming in mind. On connecting the message of the gospel with the communal world that we live in now. Sometimes living out the gospel means something as simple as gardening. Sometimes it's something as simple as practicing things that we already do in a way that helps others with the knowledge that in helping others, we are in turn helping ourselves. We are in turn building something that will outlast us. That we are sharing in joy, that we are sharing in love, that we are sharing in shalom, that we are sharing in jubilee. So for those of us gathered here, may this be a year of jubilee.